December 25, 2001, a very memorable day of my life. It was the day of my baptism. I was 18 years old, the first in my entire Hindu family lineage to become a follower of Jesus Christ. The week prior to the baptism was not easy. My family's repeated pleadings and warnings were for me not to do this. I heard comments like, you've been totally brainwashed. You're making a serious mistake. You're going to regret all your life. You're bringing such shame on the family. In the culture that we come from, it is hard to make an independent decision. We are such a close-knit family unit. And baptism is seen as the official point when somebody leaves their old religion behind and embraces the Christian faith. And I remember my baptism service as though it was yesterday. As I was about to step into the waters, the small congregation of believers sang enthusiastically a song that is so fitting. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And for many believers around the world, the day of their baptism begins a lonely journey that they have to travel all alone because they have made the commitment, though none go with me, still I will follow. We're living in times in history where more people today are suffering for their Christian faith than any other people, any other generation in all of history. Nuns brutally attacked and raped. Christian pastor beaten up severely. Church building demolished and burnt. Bonfires made of Bibles. Christian educational institution threatened. Hospital run by missionaries for tribals in a remote village is attacked, ransacked, and staff assaulted. The list of savage, brutal attacks against Christians seems to be growing numerically and geographically. And as people living in North America, we have the freedom of speech. We have the freedom to practice any religion. We can propagate any faith that we want. And when we look at this global scenario of the persecutions all around us, it just doesn't make sense to us. Why would somebody be persecuted for their faith? And then you turn over to your Bibles and you will notice that one of the central themes in the Bible is persecution. The New Testament is a book written by persecuted believers to persecuted believers. The New Testament writers talk a lot about suffering. But if you look at the context of the suffering that they are addressing, it is not general suffering because we live in a fallen world. It's not suffering because of our marriage problems, our financial problems, our health problems. The kind of suffering that the New Testament writers are talking about, particularly, is suffering for the sake of righteousness. Because there is a collision between the value system of the world and the value system of believers. And persecution is a result of the oppositions we face for being the people of God in a world that doesn't recognize God. I want to base my message today from a passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes this book primarily to Christians who are being persecuted. So I'm going to read to you 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 to 16 and verse 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed and praise God that you bear that name. And in verse 19, Peter says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Imagine if persecution were to break out here in Calgary tomorrow, that we would be physically and verbally assaulted for our faith in Christ. What do you think our response would be? You know, our primary response would be a response of surprise. We would be shocked. We wouldn't be able to believe that something like this is happening in our own city. And we would turn to the word of God, and Peter would say to us from God's word, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you. For Peter, persecution is not something that you would be surprised about. The New Testament writers present persecution as a norm and not an exception. The Apostle Paul would categorically state in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no exception. While all believers face an element of persecution, there are some who face it to a, a greater degree. And persecution continues to remain the norm in several countries in the world. And Peter is saying something very significant in this passage, especially if you look at verses 13 and 14. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of God, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. For Peter, persecution is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That is why the ones who are persecuted can rejoice, can celebrate, because they have the honor and the privilege of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. They are called as blessed. I've been part of several prayer meetings here in Calgary, and a typical prayer would go like this. Lord, we thank you so much for the freedom we have in this country to worship you. We are so blessed. We think we are so blessed because of the freedom we have to worship Christ, whereas the word of God tells us it's the opposite. The ones who don't have the freedom to worship Christ, but still would exalt the name of Jesus, risking their life, they are the blessed ones because they get to share in the sufferings of Christ. How do they share in Christ's suffering? Jesus is the persecuted one. Throughout his life here on earth, Jesus was persecuted, and he continues to be persecuted today. Jesus faced such verbal assaults and insults during his time here on earth. Do you know that during his time here on earth, Jesus was called a bastard, a drunkard, a blasphemer, and a devil? Jesus endured the mockery of the cross, the shame and the insult and the pain of suffering and dying on the cross, knowing that it was the very essence of his mission, the reason that he came. Because if Jesus had not suffered on the cross, we all would be still in our sin. So the persecution of Jesus resulted in something good coming out of it. But the persecution of Jesus is not over yet. It continues to happen in the world today. There's a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ that depicted Jesus as someone who was struggling with doubts, depression, 
and sexual lust. The movie was well acclaimed and received a number of awards. An American artist was sponsored by the National Endowment of Arts, a government agency in America, to do this work called Piss Christ. And in this picture, he shows Jesus hanging on a cross in a bottle sunk in the artist's own urine. And the artist receives an award for his work. And we all know the popular book, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, that shows Jesus as a mere mortal who married Mary Magdalene and fathered children. When we hear things like these, our hearts are saddened as followers of Jesus. How can the world do this to the most noble person we know? And yet, we are reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 25. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So it does not come as a surprise today that Christians would be insulted, that nuns in India would be stripped and paraded naked, that their modesty would be violated by force, and they would be forced to drink human urine that a pregnant woman who is distributing tracts is kicked repeatedly in her stomach, that many would be tortured for their faith in Jesus, and some would eventually become martyrs for the sake of the gospel. I want you to notice the significant connection. If the suffering of Jesus was essential for the salvation of a lost world, so is the suffering of his followers. There's the suffering of Jesus, there's the salvation of the world, and there's suffering of believers, and these three are connected. Because without Jesus suffering on the cross, there is no possibility of salvation for the world. So Jesus has prepared a love offering when he suffered and died on the cross for the world. And there's only one thing that is missing in that offering a personal presentation of Jesus himself to the nations of the world to say, this is my gift for you. This is what I have done for you. And it is this privilege that God has entrusted to the church to be the ambassadors of Jesus, to go on behalf of Jesus and make this personal plea to the nations of the world to call them to worship God and to receive this gift of life. And when the world sees the church, when they see the sufferings of the church, they would see the sufferings of the Savior. When the world sees the afflictions of the church, they would notice the afflictions of Christ. When the world sees the sacrifices of the church, they will know the sacrifice of God. If we proclaim the cross as the only way of salvation to God, then the marks of the cross need to be seen in us, the messengers. And persecution, if you notice, arises as a result of our choices. If we were to choose a life of comfort, affluence, ease, and safety, there would be no persecutions. If we choose to blend with the crowd and not stand distinct, there would be no persecution. Nobody would attack us for our faith. But alas, the consequences of such choices would also mean that many people in the world would never come to the saving knowledge of Christ. But when we do embrace the cross, when we do embrace the suffering and participate in that suffering with Christ, we have the privilege of bearing his name. 
That's what Peter says. We bear the name of Jesus. What an honor. And the persecuted Christians can rejoice because if they share in the sufferings of Christ, they will also get to share in the glory of Christ. Because one day, the ones who were trampled will be lifted up. The ones who were insulted will be exalted. And the ones who were tortured will be given a crown. Oftentimes, we don't even hear about the news about persecutions around the world because they are kept underground. They're kept secret. In spite of all the media efforts and organizations like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors doing a phenomenal job, still much of suffering happens in silence without the knowledge of the majority of the world. But there is a God in heaven above before whom there is no secret. He notices all of the suffering and he promises and he says that he's going to reward all those who suffer for his name. And Peter goes on to say in verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Those who suffer according to God's will. Because people now teach that suffering and God's will are mutually exclusive. There's no connection between the two. Well, it's granted not all suffering is according to God's will, but Peter is saying there is a form of suffering which is according to the will of God. And when we face that type of suffering, we are called to entrust ourselves to the faithful creator. And the persecuted church does exactly that. They take refuge unto God. And as a result of that, they have an intimacy in their walk with Jesus, a depth, a profoundness, a richness that some of us have no clue about. They know what it means to abide in Christ. They know what it means to have God as their refuge and ever-present help in time of need. In the last part of my message, I want to address this very important question. When God's people are being harassed, persecuted, tortured, raped, and killed, what is God doing? Is God a passive witness to these detestable crimes? Is God's arm shortened that he cannot save, or his ears deaf that he cannot hear the cries of his people? Are the enemies just too strong for an omnipotent God? Why is he silent when his people are being slaughtered all day long? And even as we raise these difficult questions, there's only one answer. It leads us to the cross. It leads us to this very place. When God saw the suffering of his own son, when God saw the agony of his son being tortured and insulted and beaten and nailed to this cross, and God didn't do anything about it. He remained silent. God could have saved Jesus from the ignominy of the cross, but he restrained himself because God was going to do something so powerful through the cross of Christ that he could do through no other means. That's why he restrained himself. God was going to bring a greater good through the evil of the cross. Yes, it was painful for God to see his son suffer and die, but God orchestrated that event to bring salvation to the world. And when 
His sons and daughters around the world are being persecuted today. His heart bleeds for them. God wants to help them, but he restrains himself. He restrains himself because God is going to do something so powerful through the persecuted church that he could do through no other means. While we would like to see vengeance and judgment upon the persecutors, God chooses to be silent because he's going to use the persecution as a vehicle to demonstrate his glory. And there's no greater witness to the authenticity of the gospel than believers who are willing to suffer for it. It opens the eyes of the unbelieving world. The book of Acts records the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian faith. And I believe the martyrdom of Stephen had such a huge impact on the apostle Paul that eventually led to the Damascus Road experience and his conversion. We need the Stephens. We need to see more Pauls rise up in this world. It was 23rd January, 1999, and the newspaper headlines all across India had the same message. Australian missionary Graham Staines and his two little sons, Philip, aged nine, and Timothy, aged seven, were burnt alive in the province of Orissa in India. It was a cold-blooded operation where a mob had gathered around this family. They'd beaten them severely. They speared them and finally locked them inside a wagon so they could not escape and lit them on fire. The mob watched these people being roasted alive and they sang praises to their Hindu gods. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in John 16, 2 and 3. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. It happens all the time in the Islamic world. When people think when they are torturing Christians and persecuting Christians, they are doing God a favor. The charred bodies of Graham and his two sons were beyond recognition. The only thing that you could see where the three were locked in an embrace, saying their final prayers to God on this side of eternity. But the entire nation of India was shaken by this incident. It opened the eyes of the world to the kind of persecution that happens in this country. The leper community with whom Graham Staines worked were quoted saying, Staines and his wife would personally wash our sores and dress the wounds with medicines. And when we were cured, they would teach us some skills and give us jobs. Is this wrong? What did he do that he should be burnt alive? They even killed Philip and Timothy. What loving kids. They used to come and play with us lepers, the outcasts of the society. But the amazing thing, the amazing thing in the entire story is the response of Graham's wife, Gladys Staines. When the entire attention of the nation was upon this one woman, when all of media wanted to go to her and find out her reaction to this brutality when her husband and two little children were burnt alive, how do you feel? What do you want to say? This woman looked at the people in their eyes and she said, I forgive my offenders. I forgive my offenders. And that had such an impact on the nation of India, on the people, that the media quoted it in bold letters in the newspapers. People were reading for the first time in history the gospel of Christ in their newspapers. Magazines were making a cover story of the whole issue. 
and a number of them were asking questions like this, what would it take for a man to leave his country behind and serve the lepers in India for 34 years? From where does his widow and daughter get the spiritual strength to completely forgive the killers? Just who exactly is this God that they believe in? You see what persecution does to non-believers? It opens their eyes, it convicts them, it helps them to see the glory of God and the power of the gospel. What does persecution do to believers, to fellow believers who see other Christians being persecuted? We often think that the persecuted church needs us, and I believe they do. And we would hear Pastor Kerbin come and talk to us some of the practical ways by which we can identify with the persecuted church, by which we can help them. But let me tell you something. More than them needing us, we need the persecuted church. We need their prayers. We need their evangelistic zeal. We need their commitment. We need their understanding of discipleship. We need the passion on which they are on fire for God. Because we live in a dark world where people are just sleeping. The world seems to be sleeping in darkness. And sometimes the church seems to be sleeping in the light. In an age where diluted nominal Christianity seems to become the norm, when believers have got their priorities messed up and they have fixed their eyes on the things of the world rather than on things of God, the persecuted church wakes us from our slumber. They give us a wake-up call. And by their example, by their dedication and their commitment to Jesus, they show what it means to be authentic disciples of Christ. We pity them for all the suffering they go through. The worst thing that can happen to Christians is not persecution and suffering. Do you know what's the worst thing that can happen to Christians? It's living a life of disobedience to God. It's a life of half-hearted, shallow commitment that results in poor choices. When we would go farther and farther away from the heart of God and still claim that we belong to Jesus. That's the worst thing that can happen. And how do we measure our commitment to Christ? It's by the daily choices that we make. That's the gauge, that's the measuring rod by which we know how committed we are to the cross of Christ. I want to close with this poem by William Mechesney, a missionary who was martyred in Congo at the age 28. He wrote this poem just before, just days before his death. The poem is titled, My Choice. I want my breakfast served at eight, with ham and eggs upon the plate, a well-broiled steak I'll eat at one, and dine again when day is done. I want an ultra-modern home, and in each room a telephone, soft carpets too upon the floors, and pretty drapes to grace the doors, a cozy place of lovely things, like easy chairs with inner springs, and then I'll get a nice TV, of course I'm careful what I see. I want my wardrobe too to be of neatest, finest quality, with latest style in suit and vest, why should not Christians have the best? But then the master I can hear, in no uncertain voice so clear, I bid you come and follow me, the lonely man of Galilee. Birds of the air have made their nest, and foxes in their holes find rest, but I can offer you no bed, no place have I to lay my head. In shame I hung my head and cried, how could I spurn the crucified? Could I forget the way he went, the sleepless nights in prayer he spent? A man of sorrows and of grief, no earthly friend to bring relief. Smitten of God, the prophet said, Mock, beaten, bruised, his blood ran red. 
If he be God and died for me, no sacrifice too great can be for me a mortal man to make. I'll do it all for Jesus' sake. Yes, I'll tread the path he trod. No other way will please my God. So henceforth this, my choice shall be, my choice for all eternity. I don't know where you are in your choices. I know where I am. A long way away from the kind of commitment that the persecuted church calls for. And may God help us, may God help us to make those choices that will honor his name and exalt the cross of Christ in our city. If you're not going to have Greg Musselman from the Voice of the Martyrs share with us, Greg has the opportunity to travel to about 40 countries in the world where persecution has happened severely, and he has had the opportunity to talk to those people, to interview them, to video them, and he's got a powerful experience to share with us, so we're so grateful that Greg is here with us. Bless you, man. You know, in the Bible, the Bible tells us that when the Spirit of the Lord is speaking, what are we supposed to do? Listen? I don't know about you, and I've heard that message now three times this weekend. That is the Spirit of the Lord. And I'd encourage you not to just allow this to go in and, hey, that was a great service, or I was challenged, but to really let it sink deeply in your heart. It will change your life and your passion and the focus for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I come from uh, the second greatest city in Canada, Edmonton. And I was asked to share just a few minutes about uh, trying to help us to get a better understanding and, and seeing the face of the persecuted around the world and my motivation uh, for continuing to go into the number of countries that I've been into and the hundreds of persecuted believers that I've interviewed and met with and cried with that have been tortured and killed, families ripped apart, incredible trauma. You know, what is the motivation that, that, that has been stirring in my heart that caused me, you know, just a couple of months ago to go into Nigeria and I'll be heading back into East Africa in just a few weeks again. Uh, what is it that propels me? Well, I, I feel personally it's a call of the Lord. I come from a broadcasting background. In fact, it was uh, interesting after the first service, people from the Edmonton area coming up and, hey, I remember you on TV. And that was a number of years ago now. And then feeling a call of the Lord into pastoral ministry and Bible school and, and then Christian television ministry, all culminating for something that happened in my heart 25 years ago when I heard a message about the persecuted church about six, seven years after uh, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And through the years, you know, gained some experience in terms of uh, video camera, and I had been, you know, uh, in broadcasting since I was a kid. And as I prayed to the Father and I asked him, Lord, what is on your heart? What is it you want me to do? And I just felt so strongly it was about the persecuted church and our brothers and sisters in Christ, because he sees that every day. And as our brother has shared, uh, you know, constantly the blood of our, our friends in Christ are being shed around the world. So trying to bring a, a face to that. And, you know, if, even as we, you know, seeing the different people, I mean, there's a brother from, if I turn around too much, I'll start going through that. That's from Iraq. The brother before uh, was from North Korea, uh, some of the most difficult places in the world. Because you can get numbed by the numbers. 40 to 60 nations where Christians are under persecution. The majority of the body of Christ do not have the freedom that we have. And there's some downfalls of having freedom because we, are, we can fall asleep in the light. Uh, we, there's that reality. 
But because we are passionately in love with Jesus, or we should be, we care about those that are suffering today. So as we travel to nations like Eritrea in East Africa, where 3,000 of our brothers and sisters in Christ, almost every evangelical pastor, because Christianity around the world, as evangelical Christianity, is seen as American. And in 2002, uh, the religious leaders pressured the government to close the churches in Eritrea. They shut down the churches. All of them were shut down just except a handful. And, in the, and they said, you have to register. In that time, two churches have been registered. So what do, you, what do you think happened when they closed big churches, even some bigger than this? Did the Christians just quit meeting? No. They started to meet in homes. And the government started to come in and arrest them. And, and you know, they say they would have a, a succession plan. If you're arrested, you lead, and so on down the line. And again, I use sports illustrations, but the bench strength was weakened. But even in the midst of that, the kingdom of God is still marching forward in Eritrea. You can't stop the growth of the church. Right from the beginning, Jesus said, since the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has, what? Suffered violence. That's just the reality. But we also know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So as we've traveled into places like Eritrea, three of the brothers I met eight years ago, a month after we left, Kiflu, Kadani, Pastor Hali, whose brother-in-law is a worship leader of an Eritrean church in Edmonton, were arrested. They've been sitting in prison for eight years. Kadani, Gebra Meskel. I mean, these are not, I know these are new names, but for me it's deep in my heart. When I think about, you know, in Hebrews 13.3, Remember those, not in a passive way, but remember those that are suffering. I was with Kadani in his home with his three daughters and his wife. I have three daughters. I, you know, we had a wonderful time. We traveled through the country, made a documentary, which eventually the government uh, people saw. And believe it or not, they have said that we're CIA agents. Didn't know that about me, right? Um, but the enemy is just using whatever, and he uses the same old thing. Christianity is American religion. And, uh, it's, it's, but God is still moving by his Holy Spirit. Or we go into, you know, Iraq, and we meet Afnan, whose husband was a Christian. He was the only Christian among his co-workers were security guards. And they tried to get rid of him, get him out of there. He wouldn't leave, so they came to his home. They tortured him all night with his wife and daughter in the next room. All night you heard him screaming, and then a, a shot. And she was let out of the room by neighbors, finding his dead body. Jabber Hickman, who was also in Iraq. We met him up in the northern part of the country, in Kurdistan. His elderly grandparents were tortured. They had crosses cut into them because they're followers of Jesus Christ. They would not back down. Or going to places like Nigeria, which is, for me personally, and I've been there now several times, I get pretty messed up when I hear the stories. But the pain that they're dealing with, I mean, for me, I, I don't want to do this sometimes. I, I just want to do something that seems maybe normal, and I can't take the pain and the pressure. But we keep going back because we need to help them. I feel in this sort of position of being, a, and I love this country, Canada. Grandma, I'm glad my grandparents came from Norway. But I feel like one hand to the church in Canada, one hand in the, the persecuted church, because there's no really two churches. There's not the free and the persecuted. There's one church, one God, one Savior, one baptism. And we, we're, we're holding and saying, yes, we need each other. And I'm glad that you're in our country, brother. We need that stirring of the Holy Spirit to wake us up out of our lethargy at times. 
So when he went to Nigeria and we met Monica Draw, whose husband was killed because he was a Christian and refused to back down to the Boko Haram, a militant Islamic group that were trying to force Christians to become Muslims by the sword. He refused. They killed him right in front of her. Then they slit her throat. For three days she laid there. And I, and I could tell you many stories of supernatural things. For three days, she, would she drink water? And I don't want to be overly uh, graphic, but the water would just seep onto her chest because her throat was cut. For three days, she saw these white beings. She says, I don't know if they were animals. I know they weren't animals. I know they weren't people. Uh, we believe that they were likely angels. She survived. Husband died. Son was killed. Another son died in a traffic accident. But she is still serving Jesus. And the, and the power of the Holy Spirit in her is amazing. That's what energizes me. It's like my African friends will tell me, you're, you're a white guy on the outside, but you got, you're kind of black on the inside. I just don't dance like you guys can over there. That's okay. We get to heaven. But God is stirring us up. So we went to the Deeper Life Bible Church in Gombe, northeastern Nigeria, the Boko Haram. This Islamic group said, we're going to destroy the church. We're going to wipe it out. Of course, again, we know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. He's coming back, and it's going to be amazing, and there will be a church waiting when he returns. But in any battle, a spiritual battle, when these things take place, there's casualties. So we went to the Deeper Life Bible Church on a Sunday morning, just a couple months ago, seeing the bullet holes in the wall, the blood on the floor, where the Boko Haram, three young men came in to a prayer meeting of 40 believers on a Thursday night, and they opened fire on them. By the time the carnage was dead, 10 people were gone. Pastor Johnson Euro, his wife, Halima, killed. And others that were, that were brutally murdered. Two dozen were injured, including a brother by the name of Yakubu Napu. And he was in that deeper life church. He got shot, you know, on the hips and was bleeding. And this is his Bible. And as I brought this back, and I've had the privilege of showing this on television and places in Canada, Christian secular media, and even in other parts of the world, as a reminder, the blood of the martyrs. And a martyr is not just, it's a witness, not just one that dies, but people that are willing to stand for Jesus Christ. And when I see that, my passion rises for the lost in our country, and for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are paying an incredible price for their faith. See, the Bible tells us uh, in Revelation chapter 6, the fifth seal is open, and you know the story. They're crying, the martyrs crying before the throne of God, right? You know the story? The martyrs had a white robe put on them, and then the Spirit of God said that this persecution will not end until the number of those who were to be killed was completed. Then the great one called Jesus will return. Until then, we must pray. And one of the things that we've heard over and over, and I've, and I've talked you know, in many places and interviewed many people, and saying, what do you want me to tell your brothers and sisters in Canada? So this is the word from our brothers and sisters in other places. Please pray for us. And in China, it's not pray the persecution will end, but pray that we would be strong through the persecution. Their fear, in many places, if the persecution dies down, they will become lukewarm in their faith. So this is the most important thing we can do is to pray for our brothers and sisters. How shall we respond? 
when we are exposed to the realities of uh, life in other countries. Well, we want to pray, as uh, Greg has mentioned. We're going to do that in just a few moments. I was struck, Pastor Ashman, of, in your message of how uh, it appears that wherever God's people are, are living for God the way he wants them to, wants us to, they're noticed. And in many places, the, are, the people that notice them aren't happy. And so persecution comes. It speaks to us, doesn't it, about the, the way we're living our lives here in our country, Canada. Do the people around us notice our faith in God, our trust in God, the values that we have? It is something for us to ponder. We're going to pray together. And we're going to spend some time in silent prayer. I'd like you to do that. And as you're praying, you remember that you received today a bracelet. I'd like you to take that bracelet and put one ring around one arm and one ring around the other. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 3, that we are to remember those who are in prison because of their faith as if we were there with them that we are to remember those who are suffering as if we were there with them. How do we enter into the suffering of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith? Well, one way is in prayer. Another way is to engage in prayerful action. You will see out in the atrium of our church the voice of the martyrs table where you will find some literature. Literature of books like this by Richard Wormbrand, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, called Tortured for His Faith. You'll see some magazines there, Voice of the Martyrs magazine. And uh, as I've exposed myself to this literature, to the Voice of the Martyrs website, God began to do something in me he began to help me to see the stories and hear the stories of these people, hear the cries of their heart. And it began to change my prayer life. It's beginning to change how I live my life. And so what God asks of us is to engage in prayerful action by entering into the suffering of our brothers and sisters through means like voice of the martyrs. If you go to the table out there, you can pick up a little card like this and declare to the voice of the martyrs your interest in being part of their mailing list. And I know there's lots of stuff we get in the mail. But this matters. This kind of mail matters for what it's going to do inside of us and then through us. Coming this fall, Pastor Ashwin and myself, we're going to start a prayer meeting group in the Northeast Community Center that Ashwin will be leading. It's a prayer group for serious prayers. It's for those people who understand the power and importance of fasting and prayer. If you'd like to be part of that, you just watch and listen over the next weeks as to where that group will meet and when. And then coming in October, one of our pastor churches from northern India is going to be here. And he's going to be talking to us about life in the state in which he ministers. He faces the reality of persecution every day of his life. In his particular region of the world, 12 in every 2,400 people 
are followers of Christ. This sanctuary seats 2,400 people. Imagine if there were just 12 of us that were Christians here and everybody else is in opposition to us. That is a reality we know nothing of in this country. But we need to inform ourselves of it so that we can pray Amen. and so we can engage in prayerful action. And so, would you bow together with me in silence as we pray together in our hearts for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Yes, Lord, we remember. Yes, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Lord. We remember today that persecution has a face. These are real people, human beings just like us. When their bodies are struck, their bodies bleed just like ours. And so we remember. When they are beaten, their bones break just like ours would. And so we remember their suffering and pain. Yes, Jesus. We remember that when they're taken from their families, men or women, that they worry for their spouses and their children, who's going to take care of them? They worry just like us. They have fears just like we do. <coughs> what will come next? How long will the torture happen? They feel pain just like we would, and so we pray for them. We remember they're human beings just like us. When they're stripped naked, their dignity is violated just like ours would be. Oh, the shame we remember. And we remember that their strength is not in their willpower, the strength of their bodies, but their strength is in you, O oh God. Yes, Lord. And it is a mystery, it is a miracle how you provide for these, our brothers and sisters. And it is in prayer today, O oh God that we implore you on Christ's behalf to work miracles wherever these people, our brothers and sisters, are being tortured. Be their strength. Be their hope. May they feel your love. May they understand that all things will work together for good to those that love you. Yes, Lord. Yes, Jesus. And while they wait, we pray for boldness. Yes, Lord. For boldness to speak the word of truth for boldness and courage to be strong. Yes, Lord, we remember. Yes, Lord, we hear their cries today to not be forgotten, but to know the church in, churches in Calgary are praying for them. Yes, Lord. The Lord Jesus, when he was in this world, taught a prayer to, to his disciples Oftentimes we recite that prayer out loud and we miss the very purpose of the prayer and the purpose of the prayer was to give us prayer themes to pray through and to pray about. We're going to do that together now 
So we pray the Lord's Prayer. Pastor Ashwin will lead you as a congregation in reciting out loud together the writing that's in bold print, and I will pray the words that are in the lighter print. Our Father who is in heaven. Thank you for the privilege we have in praying to you. You see all things. We confess our need for your perspective on the troubles we face in this world. Holy is your name. May your name be honored by our lives in our suffering and dying for Christ's sake. Your kingdom come. We long for your kingdom to come into this world of trials and difficulties. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you build your church through suffering. Help us to confess your name faithfully and courageously, and may those who oppose and persecute turn to you. Give us today our daily bread. Supply the needs of your witnesses in prison and their families at home, the widows and the orphans of the persecuted. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us when we have been ashamed of your witnesses and when we have forgotten them. Forgive us where we have betrayed you and lead us back into fellowship with you. Help us to choose to forgive those who hurt or harm us. And lead us not into temptation. Help us to be strong and when tempted to deny you and forsake our faith. Give us patience as we wait for your good, pleasing and perfect will to be accomplished. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the adversary who is the enemy of Christ. Deliver us from those who serve the purposes of the enemy of our souls. For yours is the kingdom. You will establish your reign and you will judge in your time. The power. Be your, by your presence and power, we will remain steadfast unto death. And the glory forever. In the end, all will honor you. Every knee will bow and every voice will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Amen. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 13, the very end, verse 20, that the God of peace brought back Jesus Christ from the dead. And he said, by that same power, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in you what is pleasing to him. This is our prayer for you. May you go in peace and the God of peace go with you. If you have a need for prayer today, please come. There will be some of us here who would love to pray with you. Amen.